and welcome to another Dairy Dialogue podcast, and we've reached 70. I'm not sure if that means anything, and I'm definitely not about to listen to the previous 69 for a nostalgia trip. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and it seems that we're starting to have some longer interviews on the show, which is fine by me. It's nice to have a good balance. We have three guests on the podcast this week. Gilles Fromont, Senior Vice President, Government and Industry Relations at Lactalie Canada, who is on the organizing committee of the IDF International Cheese Science and Technology Symposium. Steve Grun, CEO of Yofix, and Tina Owens, Senior Director of Agriculture at Danone, North America. Of course, we have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from INTL FC Stone as well. And we'll also recap the news from the past seven days from DairyReporter.com. It's a week where I have to produce a special newsletter on infant nutrition as well as next week's podcast this Friday. Because next week I'll be at the Salon de l'Agriculture and the Salon de Fromage, both of which are taking place in Paris under the same roof. And for once, I got my press pass early. The forecast is considerably better than last time and better there than here. I was at the event two years ago when it was minus five Celsius and snow and my flight home got cancelled. It looked like all of the flights were going to be a problem for a little while so I was in the middle of Paris headed toward the metro station when I got the text. And thank goodness for smartphones. I was able to get a spot on a bus from Paris to London and just made it with about three minutes to spare. It was a bit longer than a flight, but at least I got home the same day. The forecast is for low teens Celsius and no rain. I'll take both, please, with a side order of fries. So next week I'll be heading back from Paris when the podcast goes live, hopefully armed with lots of interviews that don't disappear once I plug my phone into the computer. I've been trying to get lots of stuff from my phone onto the computer in the hope that freeing up some space will make a difference. I also booked my flights to Northern Ireland for the Society of Dairy Technology Conference, which is coming up in April, and hopefully we'll have an interview on that at some point in the near future. Oddly enough, it's the closest other country to where I live now in Scotland, and this will be my first trip there. The capital, Belfast, is even closer to my home than the capital of Scotland, Edinburgh, or, as I've heard it called by tourists, Edinburgh. And many Scottish people are not shy in correcting people either when they hear that. Before I get to the news, a quick reminder to register for the live Dairy Reporter webinar, which is coming up on March the 12th. For some reason, no one in the production team was keen on Friday the 13th, which is just as well, as I've got a dentist appointment on the 13th, so I may sound even more incoherent than usual. Anyway, the webinar, it's on sustainable dairy products, it's an hour long, and it's an all-female panel, except me, of course, and those panellists are Aurélie Letortu, Senior Corporate Sustainability Manager at Friesland Campina Ingredients, Maria sanchez Maina, Scientific Programme Manager at the International Dairy Federation, and Dr. Isabel Genie, Sustainability Manager at Amcor Flexibles Europe, Middle East and Africa. Registration is free, so just head over to DairyReporter.com and you'll see an ad for it on the right-hand side of the page. So, let's go over some of the news you may have missed, or skipped over. I do that a lot, thinking I'm going to read it later, and two years on I still haven't. In Germany, DMK Group has created a single concept for its Milram 
protein products. Unilever is changing its policy on marketing ice cream to children, although my son already knows which aisle they're in in the supermarkets. In Norway, Tinna issued its financials. Hochwald is looking to strengthen its Middle East market. And the NMPF is calling for the end to red herring arguments in the dairy alternatives debate. Dean Foods entered into an asset purchase agreement with DFA and Volpac is launching a new product at Interpac in Dusseldorf in Germany in May, another event I shall be at. Those and more, including registration for the webinar at dairyreporter.com. I might have mentioned the webinar already, I'm not sure, and I may again before the end of the show. Which brings us, not very neatly at all, into this week's guests. In June, the weather should be very nice in Quebec City in Canada. I have to say, the coldest day I have ever experienced in my life was in Quebec City, but that was in January. Funnily enough, everyone else was walking around as if it was perfectly normal, and I thought I was going to die. But by June, the historic city should be in full swing with lots of tourists, of course all backdropped by the beautiful and iconic Chateau Frontenac. And that building will be the venue for the International Dairy Federation Cheese Science and Technology Symposium, which, like leap years or the Olympics, only comes around every four years. To tell us more about the event is Gilles Fromont, Senior Vice President, Government and Industry Relations at Lactalie Canada, who is on the organizing committee of the symposium. I've been involved with the, uh, with the International Dairy Federation now probably for almost 20 years. And I've chaired the Nationals Committee for a number of years up to last year. Now I'm vice chair. When we were approached a number of years ago to host the, this event, the International Cheese Symposium of the International Dairy Federation, I said yes. And I said, yeah, we could collaborate with Stella which is a uh, dairy uh, science and research expertise center uh, based in Quebec City, affiliated with Laval University. And uh, so basically we went into this as a joint venture between Stella and the National Committee of IDF Canada, Phil IDF Canada, and I'm uh, co-chair of the event, myself and Sylvie Turgeon from Stella. How often does the symposium take place? The symposium is uh, hosted every four years, and it brings together um, scientists, mostly in the cheese sector. The last time it was held in uh, in Madison, uh, Wisconsin, in 2016, so we're hosting uh, this year in Quebec City. And roughly how many people will be at the event? We expect uh, about 400 participants, perhaps more from about 20 countries. So that's uh, that's our expectation. Registration is, is going well as we speak. Could you give me some more details about the event itself? Yeah, essentially uh, we talk about Quebec and, and Canada and stuff. Um, one of the reasons uh, to host it in, in Quebec uh, is uh, Quebec has a, a, a big long history of cheese making and Canada as well. As you may know, Canada produced now a little over a thousand cheese and about three quarters of those uh, cheese types are produced within the province of Quebec. Quebec has, uh, of course, about half the farmers uh, in numbers are located in Quebec, a little over 5,000 out of 10,000. 
uh, are uh, are producing milk in Quebec. Cheese is uh, produced in uh, 110 different factories across the province, and a little more than half of those factories are uh, artisanal uh, farmstead uh, cheese factories. So this is a good location, and this is a good place to uh, to showcase our cheese knowledge, know-how, and and experience. So in terms of the week, the main event, uh, there's quite a few events, but the main event, of course, is the cheese uh, symposium, uh, which uh, in in our view is a must attend for uh, those involved in the sector. We have a scientific program uh, that has been put together, which will include uh, 36 speakers from uh, 11 uh, different countries, focusing on different areas, uh, microbial ecology, cheese technology, uh, cheese structure, functionality, uh, nutrition, health, innovation, and so on. So there's a various topic for pretty much every every area of the uh, the cheese science you can imagine. But also in terms of the week, the participant that will uh, choose the full registration for the program will be able to freely move between uh, parallel around the symposia. For example, we have a uh, opening ceremony on June 1st, which is the Monday night, of course, showcasing the unique fine cheese of Quebec and the rest of the country. Also on the Monday during the day, we have the Novale Forum, which uh, typically showcases the research results, uh, and it's supported by the Quebec dairy producers and dairy processors. On the Tuesday, there will be a uh, milk uh, microbial ecosystem session proposed by the artisan cheesemakers. And on the Wednesday and Thursday, we have uh, been doing that in the past, but we will take advantage to host what we call an IDF Canada Dairy Outlook Conference. This conference has been a bit of an ad hoc conference that we hold for uh, Canadian dairy stakeholders every uh, few years. Uh, The last one goes back about three years ago in 2017. And uh, it's the fourth or fifth conference that we organize like this. This conference will have four main blocks. A first block where we're going to talk about the current geopolitical and dairy industry landscape. Block number two will focus on emerging technology and how it's going to change the face of dairy. The third block will be on uh, dairy as a key part of a sustainable diet. And the fourth block will be on serving tomorrow's consumer uh, with speakers from uh, AC Nielsen and so on. And we have uh, we have secured a, uh, a set of uh, renowned speaker, uh, ex-politician, uh, Canadian politician, uh, premier, and uh, chiefs of political party and those kind of things, along with some very well-known speaker. So that's going to run on the on the Wednesday and Thursday. We will also have an exhibit session to uh, have the opportunity to network in the dairy processing sector, uh, help 
the members to build awareness and partnership with the international delegates uh, uh, expert uh, that will be attending the uh, the conference. And last but not least, on the Friday, we will propose a set of technical visits. There's two or three that are being looked at. One will be, of course, the, uh, the Stella Institute of Nutrition and Functional Food, uh, which is in Quebec City. So that's going to be a local visit. As I said, it's part of, uh, of Laval University. We are also looking at hosting a, or having a visit in the uh, Charlevoix region and another visit in the Montreal area at one of the main cheese uh, processor uh, facility. And as far as the participants are concerned in terms of the makeup of the audience, obviously a lot of researchers and scientists, but is it applicable to other people within the dairy industry as well? Yeah, I think, yeah, mostly, as you said, it will be uh, for the G symposium part, it will certainly be uh, mostly uh, research scientists. we have made a special effort to uh, to invite uh, students, students that are uh, close by Quebec City, but uh, other students as well. So that's why we're organizing also a poster session. But because we have the Dairy Outlook Conference, we will attract stakeholders in the dairy industry i.e. dairy farmers, dairy processor representative, probably also some provincial and, and, and federal government officials as well. In terms of the registration, uh, uh, if you go uh, Cheese Symposium 2020, it's easy to find the uh, program uh, for the, uh, the whole week and the conference is there. Uh, we have an early bird registration uh, uh, rate that is uh, good until uh, March 1st, so uh, for the next two weeks. So I would encourage uh, your uh, readers and listeners to uh, register as full as soon as possible so that they can take advantage of the, uh, the better rate. The place that more than likely will be warm in June is Israel, the home of Yofix. The company's CEO, Steve Grun, talks to us about the company, its products, and its recent new investments. How many people are involved in the operation currently? Today we are uh, we were at uh, 10 people, uh, and we've got our own production facility. So a big part of the, of the team is, is doing the production. Uh, but we will be uh, increasing our team uh, with uh, more in the sales and marketing uh, side because uh, at this moment I'm I'm handling uh, I'm handling this uh, with uh, with a couple of agencies. Um, but that's something that we that we will be using our funds now to uh, to expand our uh, investments in sales and marketing, mm. so building brand awareness and more sales. I guess the most recent news is that you have some new funding. What will that allow you to do? So our plans are to to go abroad, so to uh, launch our uh, products in uh, in West, Western Europe. We've got a plan. Countries will start with one of the countries with a totally new brand and a totally new uh, concept. So that's uh, something that will be unveiled in the uh, in the next couple of weeks. Um, but that's the plan to go abroad, build uh, build a brand, build a distribution there. And uh, starting to uh, yeah to to have our lovely products uh, to more uh, more consumers. 
So we're more in the uh, in the in the uh, yogurt uh, or breakfast spot alternatives. So breakfast plant-based breakfast spots. That's what we are we looking at today. Uh, so fermented products, but uh, really fast. Uh, we'll be going to uh, uh, other dairy alternatives like uh, cream cheese, soft stretch cheeses. Uh, milk and and eventually also uh, ice cream. Uh, we had a prototype of ice cream at the at the show here, the Futek IL in Tel Aviv, uh, a couple of months ago, and uh, it was a tremendous success. Uh, people were coming back to Abu to have another uh, another taste of our ice cream. And what's good with us? It's everything's clean label, so we don't need to explain about our ingredients. It's a short list of ingredients of only natural ingredients and that's what we see uh, that is differentiating us from what there is on the market so we've got a short ingredients list uh, but moreover uh, when we speak about clean label is extreme clean label so uh, other companies could say uh, we are clean label but they're using all kinds of starches uh, all kinds of emulsifiers even uh, we only using real ingredients so it's uh, oats lentils sesame coconut uh, Live vegan cultures, uh, real fruit, uh, maple syrup, and and apple juice. So, so that's that's the list that we have. And throughout our uh, our proprietary uh, production process, we are able to to make uh, stable products with a great texture and a great taste without adding any additives. And some relatively big names in the dairy industry investing as well. We've got Bell, and we've got uh, uh, Miller. And we've got also uh, investment bank like uh, Lion, Lion Tree Partners. So really diversicate, uh, diversification of different uh, kind of, uh, of investors. We see the potential in our products. And that's uh, a great endorsement of our quality and technology. When we have like an endorsement from companies like Muller and, and Bell. In the dairy alternative space, do you think that that's going to be the shape of things to come when it comes to some of the bigger dairy companies that they will invest in startups as opposed to developing their own products? I don't know if that's the, uh, if that's the strategy, but uh, you see that the big dairy companies are also looking at the plant-based world. Even some like Bell, we are the first step into the plant-based world. So you've got a, a plant-based uh, business unit today. Well, given the fact that there's been an explosion in this particular sector, you would think that companies would want to be involved. Yeah, for sure. So they've got their own own development sources, resources inside. But if they want to boost to boost their development, yeah, they could cooperate with with startups. And where are products available currently? Products today are available in Israel. But uh, as I said, uh, in the next couple of weeks, we will start in one of the West European countries uh, to uh, unveil our new, uh, a new plant-based concept for there with a new brand and a new concept. Will that be yogurts, or if you can tell me? Yeah, it's, a, it's a, in the yogurt category. In the break, we, we're not calling it yogurt. It's a plant-based breakfast spot. So that's the... Uh, all you see the things in in Western Europe now, like breakfast, having a healthy breakfast to start the day. This is the concept is just totally uh, adapted to to this to this breakfast and snacking opportunity to boost your energy and give you a feeling of of satiety and also a great uh, a lot of uh, life cultures inside. So we'll yeah we'll we'll speak about it in the next couple of weeks. I think something else that consumers are looking at 
today as well. They want clean label and they want it to taste good, but there's also the sustainability aspect of things. They really want their products to be have as little impact on the planet as possible. And I know that you have like a, a zero waste production process that, that must also help with those sustainable credentials. Yes, for sure. So that's uh, one of our uh, advantages is that we've got uh, no waste at the end of the production. So it's amazing to see that we're cleaning the lines and uh, it's just to clean the residues, but uh, there's no waste. We're not throwing anything away. And that's what is giving you the feeling of uh, a feeling of satiety when you're eating our product because our product is really a, a product from, let's say, from, from field to spoon. And we're using real grains, whole grain oats, uh, that and, and lentils and sesame that we're keeping in the final product. So that's why it's a, it's a dense, uh, heavy, satiety feeling that you're getting. So it's a, it's, all, it's a kind of a meal replacement, we can say. And you mentioned as well that you're going to be expanding that line of dairy alternatives to cheeses. and. Yeah, it's not only the uh, sweet side, but we also can do the, 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 the salty side. So... Uh, uh, spreadables like uh, like uh, cheese spreads. Uh, we can do it with uh, with vegetables inside and uh, an oat milk and an ice cream. So really, the uh, the sky is the limit. And now we head over to Danone, North America, to talk to the company's senior director of agriculture, Tina Owens. The company recently had two news stories on Dairy Reporter, both about partnerships to help tackle climate change. The first is a partnership with Replant Capital, a financial services firm dedicated to reversing climate change. And the second initiative is with the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, which is aimed at improving the economic resiliency and soil health of farms, including those within the supply chain of Danone North America. Starting in 2011-2012, Danone actually began an innovative process of uh, contracting with our dairy partners. So um, we started what's called the cost plus model, um, which means we're covering the cost of production plus a margin for farms with which we have a unique relationship where we signed multi-year agreements. Well, it's not vertical integration. It's partnership and relationship with family dairies that make up roughly 40% of our conventional milk sourcing in the U.S., meaning non-organic milk. And that partnership uh, and the fact that dairy farmers in that are somewhat in a non-commoditized system, so the commoditized cost of milk and or price of milk in the U.S. has currently been uh, very low and in many cases not even covering the cost of production at dairies. Uh, We are taking the opposite approach with these farms with which we have this unique partnership in that their cost of production is covered and, and then they get a margin. That very unique setup allows them to operate from a different mindset. And so we found that not only was it innovative to sign the contracts with them, but we're able to do other innovative programs via that partnership. And uh, in 2018, we actually announced the Soil Health Program, uh, where we uh, invited a third-party eco-practices to work with our dairies that are part of the Cost Plus Model program, as well as some of the growers, and start tracking what was happening at the farm, creating a baseline, if you will of things like cover crops, crop rotation, you know, their water usage, which type of crops they're planting, and, and um, the diversity of those crops, et cetera. And so once we created that baseline of information, it started on 26,000 acres. This last year, we expanded it to 50,000 acres. Now the farmers have in their hands 
a list of the top four to six practices that their farm can adopt to continue moving on a spectrum of soil health practices. And now that they've got that information, it's kind of, you know, well, what next? So we started working with the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. The conversation began about a year ago on a unique partnership. And, and National Fish and Wildlife Foundation was actually founded by Congress in the U.S. It's, it's a very unique uh, nonprofit in that it's not part of the government, but it was established by the government. And their role is to work with private partnerships like ours and take public funding from uh, the NRCS, the Natural Resources Conservation Service, and bundle that money together for a larger impact. So we were able to take the money that we've already committed publicly, which is $6 million over five years for our soil health research, and work together on a grant proposal for a conservation innovation grant. And we ended up receiving $3 million through that grant to do uh, what the government refers to as innovative farm practice testing. And so the grant is available to us from 2020 through 2022, and it will be specifically tailored towards the operating expenses that you would have in putting soil health first. So paying for things like I mentioned earlier, like cover crops or water management, in order to help farmers move into uh, additional practice adoption on the, the mapping that eco-practices has done with their farm and the practices that would be most useful to them. So that's the first partnership. Is this something that is easy to implement with the farmers? We're, we're very lucky in that the partnership with EcoPractices allows the consultation to already be a, a two-way dialogue with the farming partners. In essence, what we're doing is now making sure that we have the, the money, both internally and, and using these public funds, to have farmers continue to move the needle on adoption. So um, we will be working with the farms uh, you know, this year and in the next couple of years on which practices they feel are most meaningful for them. A unique element of this is that EcoPractices has also been working on a, a tool that allows farmers to see how making these types of changes on their farm can actually impact their um, financial resilience. So you know, as you make these changes, there's a tipping point in your soil, typically between years three and five, and that's because you're bundling a multitude of practices uh, for soil all at once and, and going for the maximum impact. You know, We're not able to help the individual farms with our internal knowledge on what to do on that because it's unique to each farm. And so it's a conversation between eco-practices and the individual farms on what's right for their region, their soil type, and then um, you know the, inter the local NRCS office may also have some interest in helping to guide those conversations, and we're working through those uh, conversations with the government now on what they would like, how heavily they'd like to be involved in the process as we roll this grant out to um, be available for our farming partners. Obviously, everyone, including farmers, when it comes to sustainability, wants to do the right thing, but we've seen lots of farms going out of business. So obviously, there's a balance in so far as it has to be something that's economically viable as well. Yes, it's a very important question. And that's one of the reasons I start by talking about the cost plus model program, because for those farms that are enrolled in that, keep in mind, their costs are passed through to us. So we're agreeing on visibility to the costs of what happened at their farm, reviewing them. We actually have a team of people that work on that relationship with each of the individual farms that are part of that program, and then making decisions together on where to go next. And that's why having the Eco Practices platform is so key to this, because they're helping the farms say, hey, not only is this 
the partnership between all of us in the in the moment, but here's how it actually sets you up for climate and economic resilience in the future. And then keep in mind the grant money is free. So you know, free to them. We have to we have a match that we're doing with the government obviously from the funding that we've already publicly committed publicly committed. But for the farmers, that's money they, they get to use and they they provide information to eco practices. We provide the reporting back to the government. But the impact is made. And then this kind of rolls into where the replant announcement comes in, in that there are other costs at the farm, perhaps a roller crimper or planter that they would need that would allow them to move away from tillage. And that capex side of the equation comes in. And where replant is offering something new is that they've worked with some of the largest impact investors in the U.S. to create a fund that is somewhat like a slow money loan. So it's meant to be, you know, lower interest rates than the market, perhaps investing in things that don't have the typical ROI that a, a bank would require in order to make a decision on the loan. So, you know, you might want to do a, a lagoon cover or a biodigester or purchase land for organic conversion. And that might be something that, you know, the bank you're already working with is, is not necessarily interested in investing in you with. Or, you know, as I mentioned, the equipment earlier. And so it's making sure that as our farmer partners see the opportunity and what the long-term economic viability is for them on their farms, that we've created a buffet of options that they can then choose which one is right for their own situation. And then we're able to continue opening doors that they might not otherwise have. So here within the U.S., you go to your local county NRCS office, you might be able to get a commitment on one or two practices um, from them, and it might be for one year at a time. And we're working on multi-state strategies where it's all, uh, several practices bundled at once coming from the Conservation Innovation Grant payment. And we're, it, the way that the NRCS actually set this up is it somewhat bypasses the existing process in order to do really unique things. So, you know, the on-farm conservation is meant to have the widespread adoption of innovative approaches and processes to prove that this actually works for other farms. So not only are we impacting the farmers that we work with directly, but there's a case study that comes out of this that ends up being publicly available that can show how our farmers were able to make an impact on their own farm resilience over the course of the next three years for others to be able to follow suit. And obviously consumers are looking for sustainability in the food that they eat and also from what happens in their local area. Well, and that's where we've got the third-party validation to actually show um, with eco-practices what the true impact is. And some of the farmers that have been part of the eco-practices platform have used the report and outcome from eco-practices to have conversations locally with those who are concerned about the environmental impact of their, their individual dairy. So we've already started to see ways that this conversation has or these strategies have unlocked conversations for the farms in their local community to share impact. And then, of course, we're able to roll it up to what our broader impact is on scope three emissions because over 50% of our greenhouse gas emissions come from our farming operations, which, of course, we don't, we don't have vertical integration. We don't own. So we've got to find a way to incentivize the model towards change. But, of course, we don't just have an open checkbook to do that. So we've got to be really smart. Where we can afford to put money on the table, we're doing that. But then we're also going out and creating these innovative partnerships and making new friends, uh, our CEO, Mariano, likes to say, and making sure that those dollars we spend have 
as much impact as possible, um, and that those farmers are then creating a, an example, a case study for those in their neighborhood, for you know the NRCS agents, for other stakeholders in the food industry who need to see that this is financially viable and has an environmental impact that is beneficial for all. Obviously, when it comes to the business side of things, you're able to communicate what you're doing and the results through publications like Dairy Reporter. How do you then take that and connect to the consumers? That's a terrific question. I'm sure you know from covering agriculture that things move in seasons. So um, sometimes it takes a couple of years of creating the baseline and and starting to get a program movement um, before you actually have results to share. And one of the things that brands are used to sharing is is the results of their impact. We're working now with the brands in North America for how they are interested in integrating this into their their story with consumers. There's a story of transparency. There's a story of brand impact. You know, we believe in that every time you eat or drink, you're voting for the world that you want. And so we do want to put the power in consumers' hands to make the choice of purchasing with Danone, knowing that we're doing the right thing behind the scenes especially as the world's largest B Corp with a triple bottom line. You know, so we're really putting our money where our mouth is, making sure that people, planet, and profit have all been considered in how we're doing business. And you've also made large investments in the plant-based products as well. Yeah, so we're actually looking out. So we started with dairy. The majority of our acreage is in dairy uh, when we look at the U.S. And so as we look to the other commodities like soy, almonds, or oats, um, the impact on acreage is much smaller, but still relevant. And so over time, we'll be working on how we can um, you know, bring all of the products along on this journey. But it was really important that we make sure that we're putting our best foot forward in dairy because it's so critical to make sure that we're not setting our farmer partners or ourselves up for failure in the future by missing what consumers' expectations are now of this industry and how we're all collectively behaving. We believe we can play a leadership role in setting the standard for the industry on how dairy, how dairy should be done, how you, how you work with farmers in a non-commoditized system, how you create transparency for the consumer, how you have the best environmental impact that you can have, especially when you're not vertically integrated. So there's just so many different ways that we can do the right thing in the model, that, the way that it's been set up. And now we're going about executing on each of those things. And as I mentioned, it's, you know, it moves in seasons, so it takes time and commitment. And I think what speaks really well to Danone's commitment is the fact that they've got roles like mine. They've got roles uh, that do their entire focus is on the relationship with the farm as part of that cost plus model. Um, I've described my role for the last year as breaking the financial system and remaking it in a way that puts farmer profitability at the center. Have you ever talked with another CPG that has a role like that? I mean, it, it's really a unique mindset on how we're approaching this. I think consumers are certainly now being able to differentiate between companies that do just talk the talk and those that walk the walk as well, so to speak. And with all of the credentials that Danone has in this area, it certainly speaks volumes for what you're doing. Yes. Well, and I think it's important to call out how some of the other players in the industry have started to change their mindset as well. So going back to the replant example, the reason replant is able to capitalize on this moment, pun intended, is that those who have, are individuals of high net worth or have family foundations 
who have been investing in, you know, the typical way of putting money in and, and getting a specific return and pulling, you know, reaping the benefits of that, they're having a, a wake-up moment, similar to what happened on clean labels for food, where consumers suddenly were like, oh, oh, now that I know what's in my food, I'm expecting you to, to reformulate, to do better. And investors, uh, the investment community in the U.S., and I believe globally, is having a wake-up moment where they're saying, I, I need to know how my money sleeps at night. Is, am I involved in deforestation? Am I involved in, you know, am I still uh, supporting fossil fuels, et cetera? And how can I take maybe even just a portion of my money and make sure that it's going towards things that are about solutions, either for farmer economic resiliency or climate change, and, you know, try something unique and prove that it's actually worthwhile to make these investments in our agricultural community. So Replant stepped into that space, and it's a really unique partnership. Don Schaefer, one of the um, co-founders of Replant, was actually on the BLAP board for eight years and, and helped establish uh, the B Corp community. And so, you know, as the world's largest B Corp, there was a, a lot of, let's say, uh, familial friendliness by our background in the, the B Corp community and J. Cohen Gilbert helping facilitate our coming together. So, you know, there's just, so many new ways of looking at how we've done things for the last decades and, and um, taking models like uh, impact investing or even government grants and using them in unique ways to create change. And it didn't require us breaking the system, so to speak. It just required a different thought process and being able to bring others along. And I would say this where Denone's strength really shines is in bringing those other partners along to show that together we can actually have a much larger impact than any one of us could have on our own. We're having an awakening, uh, and I don't mean us personally, but as a society, um, as operators in the food movement, there has been an awakening about the benefits of, of soil, how crucial it is to uh, the health of our environment. Uh, you know, Danone has an overarching umbrella strategy of one planet, one health. We believe that the two are linked, and we want to be a big, good food company. So using that information, uh, you know, in the, the words of Maya Angelou, when you know better, you do better. And we're making sure it's not just our, ourselves, but uh, wherever possible, uh, having those partnerships to bring others along um, so they can also have uh, the same impact. And we're talking about these two projects specifically today, but of course, Danone is doing far more than just that in terms of its environmental work. That is very much the case. There's a lot more going on. There's still so much work to do. These two partnerships with Replant and NIFWIF are indicative of the type of change that can happen. And now we're looking at, okay, we've created a template here. How can we take this novel uh, approach to some of the other ways that we're impacting farms, the environment, packaging, or uh, other, other things that where we have public commitment, where we know it's a heavy lift to do on our own, and the lift gets lighter each time you're able to bring others in that want the same things as you. This is proof to everyone that there's value in putting in the time, the, the months or even years that it takes to get some of these types of programs off the ground. And now we're looking at not only how we can continue rolling this out in North America, but Denone actually has uh, global commitments around regenerative agriculture and how we're working with our farming partners around the world. And so even in North America, there's been conversations about how, uh, you know, we might be able to adopt similar practices and relationships in Canada. Are there people uh, locally 
in other regions for Genome that would be interested in following a similar pattern to what we did with an NGO partnership, with a government partnership, with a capital partnership to make this type of impact. It's important when we make these changes, these shifts, that get out ahead of the industry, that people understand what it means and that it's not just another blip press release, that there's actually this meat behind it on how something truly unique was created. And that, you know, we're more than happy to share that information um, pre-competitively with others on how they can make this type of change in their own uh, way of thinking, um, in their approach with farms, in their approach to the environment. And so I would just say, you know, as the world's largest B Corp, we're happy to have collaboration and conversations with those, especially at a time like this where, where we all really need to collectively be working on some of these big issues together. And so thank you for allowing us the opportunity to talk with you about the depth behind those two releases that we had in the last couple of weeks so that we can get more of an understanding out there of how others might be able to create such a unique partnership even within their own, uh, their own business. And now it's our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from INCL FC Stone. The European dairy market uh, continues to suffer from the uncertainty of the virus scare, where the fact there are so many unknowns, I guess, um, you know, how many people have been really affected? Is it going to become a global pandemic? And then even if you know the answers to those questions, what will be the Chinese demand effect for dairy product? The market price section has been quite negative with prices in European futures under pressure for both butter and skim milk powder. Uh, on the week, I guess, February-March, butter was off about just over €100 Euros to the 35.15 level. The rest of the curve until the end of the year was also lower by about €100 Euros also. Quarter 2 trading 35.30, quarter 3 trading around the 35.75, 80 level, and quarter 4 around 36.60 level. We saw similar price action in skim milk powder also, um, which was probably a little quite, bit quieter than usual with the Gulf Food Fair. Feb-March skim milk powder was down at about 100 euros to the 2,500 level. Quarter two was more stable, the same level, all, all the same, around 2,500 level also. Quarter three then was down about 90 euros to 25.25. And quarter four down about 80 euros to 25.50 level. Way was still trading around the 800 level. Thanks, Liam. Actually, Liam is going to be one of the guest speakers at that Society of Dairy Technology conference in Cookstown in Northern Ireland in April. Although we will certainly be talking to him before then for our weekly update. INTL FC Stone provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that is it for another week. Not sure I'm overly impressed with a 7am flight out of Glasgow on Saturday morning, but on the bright side it means being in Paris early, as opposed to having to cross the city late at night. It's not so much the flight time, it's the fact that you have to get there early to park, go through security and then wait for your gate number. And given the airport's about an hour from home, it means a very early start. But looking forward to an event which is extremely noisy, possibly the loudest one I've ever been to. 
well except for some concerts I've been to in the past. And if you were to ask which was the loudest of those, even though you're probably not asking, I'll tell you. And I'd have no hesitation in saying it was the Belgian band Front 242, who I went to see in Toronto. I'd interviewed them beforehand and therefore was right at the front, which was a big mistake. I was completely deaf for two days. And before you say I should have had ear protection on, I did. Anyway, I'll be producing the next podcast two days from now, but I'll pretend it's not. Although, of course, there won't be any news. So, until next time, have a great week, and as always, thanks for listening.